Okay, here we go. Welcome to Adventure's first teaching series of 2021, the original Big Ten. Hey, so we're going on here in uh, the Ten Commandments, and again, we're kind of, for just to change it up, we're kind of breaking it down through the original Jewish idea of how the Ten Commandments broke down. Question, maybe you've never thought about this, but according to the Ten Commandments, is there one of those commandments that would be the worst to break? I mean, compared to breaking all the others, is there one that would be the worst to violate? Is there any single one of these commands that would be a more egregious violation than any of the other commands? So here's the reason I ask that. So in 1954, Dr. Seuss wrote a book called Horton Hears a, Horton Hears a Who. Remember that? Do you remember Horton's famous little dust speck village that he found? The Who's living in Whoville. And Horton, as he tries to save them, kind of came up with a little mantra that he said all the time. Now, you remember the, the Wickersham brothers had the bad one, boil that, boil that, boil that, dust back, right? That's some of my Baptist friends. Um, <laughs> but you remember what Horton's most famous slogan was? A person's a person, no matter how small. And in Western Christianity, we kind of mimic Horton a little bit with that. And so we say, well, to God, a sin is a sin, no matter how small. Meaning that any sin at all, no matter what that sin is, whether it violates our conscience or not, it condemns us. So how many sins does it take to make us a sinner? Just the first one. This one doesn't have to be big whether it violates our conscience or not, that only takes one to make us a sinner. Romans 3.23, watch this. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. What's his standard? His standard is perfection. So whether all I do is take a pencil from work or become a serial killer, my sin still condemns me. However... Most people know intuitively, even through scripture, that some sins are clearly worse than other sins. Not that we're in a competition. Not that we're trying to find out what's the, the most I can get away with without getting in trouble. But there is a distinction. So jump in here with the uh, introduction. God does make a distinction about sin. There's no getting around that. See, we're confident that at least God has as much common sense as we do. That God can see there is a difference between me taking a pencil and me taking a life. There's a difference in that. The Old Testament book of Leviticus, which was like kind of laying out the expanded law to get people to get their ducks in a row, shows that God understood there was a difference as well. Now, the penalty, he, you, you can see the difference between the earthly penalty and the eternal penalty. Now, watch this from Leviticus chapter 6. And I know this is just trivia. It's Leviticus. I've, I hear people all the time go, in Levi Tychus. 
Yeah, that's right. That's the Greek pronunciation. <laughs> it's a Hebrew word. Okay. <laughs> Leviticus 6. Suppose one of you sins against an associate and is unfaithful to the Lord. So sinning against your fellow man is unfaithfulness to the Lord. Suppose you cheat in a deal involving a security deposit or you steal or commit fraud or you find lost property and lie about it. Or you lie while swearing to tell the truth or you commit any other such sin. If you have sinned in any of these ways, you are guilty. You're guilty. Now, here we go. You must give back whatever you stole or the money you took by extortion or the security deposit or the lost property you found or anything obtained by swearing falsely. You must make restitution by paying the full price plus an additional 20% to the person you harmed. So you have to make them whole again. American law is based on that. You have to make the person you've committed the crime against whole, and then there is a little bit there for their, their time and suffering, 20%. Now, you have to do that first. Watch this. On the same day, you must present a guilt offering. So you have to make things right with the people around you, and then you come make things right with the Lord, right? So there's two separate guilts, one against your fellow man, one against God. There's two separate amends that have to happen. As a guilt offering to the Lord, you must bring to the priest your own ram with no defects, or you may buy one of equal value, just not with the money you stole. Through this process, the priest will purify you before the Lord, make you right with him, and you'll be forgiven for any of these sins you've committed. Now, this is not in your notes, but because I, I totally missed this when I put it in there. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus affirms that when you realize you have sinned against someone, you start by making it right with them. Watch this. Matthew chapter 5, you can write this in your side notes there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar at the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, watch this, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then, then come offer your sacrifice to God. So again, there is a distinction that even God makes between earthly consequence and eternal consequence. And he shows there is a difference in sins. Here's another one, uh, Leviticus 24. It's possible to pay the owner for an animal that has been killed, but death is the penalty for murder. And you can only murder a human being, right? Or occasionally a song. Um, but death is the penalty for murder. Why? I am the Lord your God. Oh, remember how we talked about God hates racism? Listen to this. And I demand equal justice both for you Israelites and for those foreigners, that's everybody else, who live among you. So even the God of Judaism and Christianity understands not to equate the sin of stealing an office item with the sin of stealing a life. There is a difference. So which of the Ten Commandments does God consider the worst to violate? Right, number one, 
there is definitely one with more weight in God's eyes. There is definitely one commandment that declares, well, there's only one commandment that declares that if you violate it, you will not go unpunished. In fact, in a little bit, I'm going to show you, Jesus kind of reaffirms that a little bit later on. He gives a big warning on violating this one. What does that, what does that commandment say? Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. I'm going to have you circle some words. If, excuse me, you must not, what? Misuse, circle the word misuse, because we'll come back to that. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go, circle this one, unpunished if you misuse his name. Now, most of us learned most of us learned this verse in a much older English language, and it sounded more like this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Circle the word vain. Vain means falsely, ineffectually, or destructively. Isn't that interesting? You thought it meant to just use it without a good purpose? No, it's actually got a very specific meaning. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name falsely, ineffectually, or destructively. Now we're getting closer to what God intended when he laid this thing out. Now what does it mean to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? What does it mean to misuse God's name? All right, A. First thing I need to do, I need to understand the name of God. Let me clarify something for you may blow your minds, stand, stand by to have your mind blown. God is not his name. God is not his name. The word God is a generic title for any deity. Right? That's why we can say false gods. Right? God is a name for generic deity. When you put a capital G in the front of it, it means the supreme deity that's greater than any other deity. So honestly... When we pray and we say, dear God in heaven, that's the equivalent of saying, dear male human next to the orange bucket. It's very generic. It's very, very broad. God is the title. Now, for us, God with, a, with an uppercase G again means supreme deity and God does identify himself. If you want to go by the name of God, there's dozens of names that God uses for himself, each one showing a different part of his character. And he does it over and over in the Hebrew. So he does call himself our God, the Lord your God. So it's not completely incorrect to use the name God. You just need to understand that's not his name. All right? People call me pastor all the time. That's not my name, all right? That's not my name. My name's Tony. That's why people go, what do I call you? Reverend, doctor, whatever. You know, I'm like, if you got to use a title, call me Grand Poobah. <laughs> I have loved that one since the Flintstones. Um, otherwise, just call me Tony. So the Jews actually considered the name of God, the actual name of God, the, the name God called himself was the name I Am. That's his name. It means I've always existed. I'm the eternal one. I'm the existing one. So 
The Jews considered God's actual name too holy to say. So what they did was it kind of like, it kind of evolved in English for us that the word God with a capital G at the beginning of it would be how we would address him because his name was too holy to say. So we use that as a substitute. And then the Jews actually have gone one step further in English where if you see them write the name God in English, it won't, they won't actually spell it out, just, just in case they offend God. It'll be a capital G, a hyphen, and then a D. That's where we got the idea for when we want to write a cuss word and we don't want to spell it out, we put asterisk, pound sign, dollar sign, tornado, whatever, you know, across there, to not actually use the word. But they, wouldn't, they won't even spell out the word God. So if you're like me then, you've grown up understanding that what this commandment forbids is saying the word God for no good reason or for saying the word God as part of a curse. Like God, blankety, blankety, blank, blank, blank. Right? Now a bunch of you are gonna go home and go, oh, I'm gonna borrow that. God, blankety, blankety, blank. Not necessarily, not a good plan. With 170,000 words in the English language and the average person having a vocabulary of at least 20,000 words, I think we are well equipped to express ourselves without using the three-letter word God for any emotional outbursts or anything, right? And I would certainly discourage you from using the word God, uppercase G, in any way that might be interpreted as profane or vulgar, or disrespectful toward God. All right, B. I need to understand that it comes down to my intent. And I'll tell you that to tell you this. This verse has nothing to do with the word God. It has nothing to do with the word God whatsoever, how you say it or how you speak it. The word God is a what we call a social construct. Through time, humans just negotiated that certain words mean certain things. It's a human negotiation. God didn't give us that language. So it can't be the sound of the word, right? I mean, think. Dios, Zot, Shen, Gut, Gat, Akua, Paramishvar. All of those are the word for God. Do they sound alike? No. So it can't be the sound, it can't be the word it's our intent when we use the sound. If we mean it reverently, it's reverent. If we mean it profanely, it's profane. All right, number two. Why does violating this one carry more weight than the others? I'm making a play on words there I'm gonna come back to and you'll get it here in a second. So as you're probably starting to get, the word for God is not the focus of this commandment. Um, it's been a problem for us in translation for a long time. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and then it's followed by a straight-up warning. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Misuse is kind of an issue here for us. Um, what they mean by misuse and what you and I often mean by misuse are not quite at the same level. The Hebrew original doesn't suggest anything about how you use the word God in a sentence. In fact, what the Hebrew says 
is you shall not bear, you shall not carry the name of the Lord God in vain. In fact, look at your box there. It talks about carrying the name and how you live your life. You carry God's name with how you as one of God's people represent God. So in the box there, do not bear, do not carry the name of the Lord thy God in a way that destroys God's reputation. That's what that verse is about. That's what they understood. All right, A. So the focus is on how others see God through me. So it's how I choose to live, how I represent God, how I live this out that determines whether or not I am carrying the Lord's name in vain. Now, later on, the Apostle Paul comes right back to this same theme. Watch what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. So we are Christ's what? Ambassadors. God is making his appeal, how? Through us. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents their sovereign. An ambassador represents their nation's leader. An ambassador is in a foreign land carrying the reputation, carrying the authority, carrying the message, carrying all of that that stands for and represents their king and their homeland. So when God says, do not carry the name of the Lord thy God in a way that destroys my reputation. He's warning us that we are ambassadors. We represent him. And how we treat other people reflects on him. So he's talking about how people view you as one of God's people. Man, if people know that you are a Christ follower... Their concept of God is based on how they see you behave. Their concept of God is based on how they see you treat other people. In other words, his reputation is shaped by my reputation, by your reputation. All right, let's go to B. My reputation and behavior affect how others see God. So it means that when people know we claim to belong to God, the God that everyone knows has commanded us to love our neighbor, how? As ourselves. The God who said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but we behave badly or we commit evil, it discredits God. So for a thousand years, Christianity was the, excuse me, Europe was the seat of Christianity. Christianity was based out of Rome, and it was all across Europe. And yet what's interesting is the evil that was committed in the name of Christianity by pope after pope after pope, by king after king after king, all of that brought the continent to the point of where the people there simply started to associate the evil committed by people in the name of the church as a part of Christianity itself. As a result, Europe has by and large lost Christianity. 75% of the Brits under 30 years of age say they have no religion. 74% of European adults identify as non-Christians. Why, why have they lost Christianity? The Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> 
the French Inquisition, the Papal Wars, the wars between Luther and the Anabaptists. <laughs> Go back, Europe has been nothing but a giant puddle of blood for over a thousand years. All of these people killing other people who claim to be Christians because they didn't believe it exactly the same way. And because of that, those people see God through the reputation and the behaviors of evil people who have historically given God a bad name. That is what it means to falsely carry the name of God and to damage and destroy his reputation. And God says very clearly, when you turn people off to me because of you, that's problematic, and you will not go unpunished. All right, C. Why does God consider it a big problem? Sure, so when an irreligious, complete stranger commits evil, it doesn't bring God and religion into disrepute. When religious people commit evil, especially in God's name, not only are they committing evil, they're doing horrible damage to the name of God, to the reputation of God. For example, if some irreligious stranger molests a child, it is horrible, but who gets blamed? That person who did it. If a priest molests a child, not only is it horrible, but it brings a tsunami of accusation against the whole church, against anyone in ministry. Listen, it is not a coincidence that right after 9-11, there was the birth of what is now called the new atheism. So atheism has always been um, just a matter of, I reject the idea of God. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there can be a God. That's been atheism. But the new atheism that came after 9-11 brought with it an actual anti-theism. It actually brought with it a, not just a disbelief in God, but it brought with it an actual hostility, an actual intentional movement to counter or discredit any thought of God. Because right after 9-11, people came out and they said, oh, that was done in the name of Allah. Allah, uh, the, the Muslim God and the Judeo-Christian God are one and the same. And man, you guys have been killing each other for 2,000 years. You see, one of the most frequent arguments against God and religion today now centers on the evil that has been committed in the name of God. And people don't, people don't qualify. They don't stop and clarify, well, was it the name of Allah or was it the name of I am? Who, whose name was that committed in, right? Whether it's done in the name of Allah. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that Allah and the God, the Father of Jesus, are one in the same. They're not. When you get in there and look, they do not have the same personalities. They are not the same at all. They are not one in the same. Or whether it's evil that's been done through Catholicism and Crusades and all those kind of things in the Middle Ages. Or whether it's evil committed today by Antifa or nationalists, right? Or white supremacists or whatever, posing as Christ followers. I don't know if you're actually aware of this or not, but uh, in the Antifa, the white supremacy forums, 
for about two weeks before the big attack on the Capitol, they were telling each other, go buy your MAGA hats, go buy your MAGA shirts, especially if you can, get Jesus and Trump flags, carry them at this rally, and start trouble. That's a known fact. See, the, the attack on the Capitol has actually been hailed by the media as a Christian insurrection. I can assure you it was not a Christian insurrection. Check the arrest records. Those people are all affiliated with anarchists. They're affiliated with Antifa. They're, affili they're affiliated with the Proud Boys. They're affiliated with everybody but Christianity. And yet the media is attaching that bad event on who? All middle-class Christians. Anyone who claims to follow Christ. See, what concerns God now is that when people do violence or murder in his name, they not only kill their victims, they kill God too. They kill others' desire to even know about God. They kill others' openness to the possibility of God. They kill the opportunity for God to speak into the lives of their victims. Listen, there are people who will always reject God no matter what. God says, listen, if they're going to reject me, let them reject me for me, not reject me for you. That's what he says. That's what he's pushing. I mean, even if we lived a perfect life, Jesus lived the most perfect life ever lived. He, he lived, well, there's not really a gradation of perfect, is there? It's either perfect or it's not. Jesus lived the one perfect life ever lived. And they killed him. They saw him do miracles and be kind and love people, and they still killed him. So we need to live in such a way that we are not personally the cause of their rejection of God. That's why God says, don't carry my name in vain. See, our behavior as God's people either draws people toward God or it drives them away from God. Our role is to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, which draws people toward God. So in ancient times, you've probably seen this in, on the Discovery Channel or whatever, in ancient times, the way they protected a city was they built a big wall all the way around the city. Um, depending on the size of the town, the wall could be massive. A lot of the walls are like 50 feet, 60 feet wide at the base and 30 feet tall. I mean, it's a massive, massive wall. And on each of those walls, they would place what they called a watchman. And so the watchman would be assigned with watching this sector and another one would watch this sector and another one would watch this sector. And there would be a watchman on the wall 24-7 all the way around that thing, they would be there in their spot. And their, their, their whole goal, their whole purpose was to look out onto the horizon and watch for danger. Look where smoke was and it didn't belong. One of the ones I found was interesting was to look for flying crows. <laughs> because crows always followed armies because they could eat the dead after the army. So they learned to follow the armies. So they would look for crows and things of that. And if they saw something that represented danger approaching, they would blow a trumpet or blow a bugle and everyone in town knew what that meant. And they could tell from the way the, the bugle came from the direction where the danger was. And they could make preparations to defend themselves. Listen, God has called you 
and me to be the watchman on the wall for the people he has placed around us. He has put in our sphere of influence. Watch this from Ezekiel 33. It's a great word picture. Son of man, give your people this message. When I bring an army against a country, the people of that land choose one of their own to be a watchman. When the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then, if those people who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm, but they ignored it. So the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people, he is responsible for their captivity. They will die in their sins, but I will hold the watchman responsible for their death. In other words, God says, listen, I have put my name on you and you have a purpose. And if you fail that purpose, if you interfere with people hearing and responding to the truth, I'm going to put that on your head. You will not go unpunished. Now, the Apostle Paul, later on, built off of those words. He's writing to a church in the city of Corinth. Now, let me just fill you in on some of this. city of Corinth, Corinth was like New York City. It was like a connecting point for the Silk Trail or Silk Road, and all these different cultures would come together and pass through there. It was a major hub of activity. Um, it was quite the town. And it, was, it also had a big church in it that was very dysfunctional. So if you say, wow, you know, the scripture's so interesting. No, you want to read something really interesting? Read first, sec, first and Second Corinthians and Galatians. Take you 10 minutes to read each one, 15 minutes maybe. What's so interesting about those? Those are permanently preserved written butt whoopings to dysfunctional churches. You want to see somebody get spanked? There's your three books right there. They get spanked. So Paul is lecturing them about their behavior and how their behavior has become a barrier to their ministry. And he goes back and he borrows that watchman on the wall thing. 1 Corinthians 14.8. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? He says, listen, if your life is confusing people about who God is and what God wants and what God is offering, your unclear life, your failure to blow a, a sound, a clear sound, is going to cost them. Jesus warns very directly about this carrying or bearing, a bearing or a failing to live out God's reputation. He, man, he talks about this consequence real clearly. The idea that we cause other people to struggle in their relationship with the Lord. Matthew 18, 6. So Jesus did a lot of metaphors. He had a bunch of children gathered around him. And he was teaching them, and people were uh, trying to tell him, get rid of the kids. The kids are, are kind of harshing your thing here. You need to be talking to the adults. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose his faith in me, or anyone who you know, claims to be mine, says or does anything that would damage my reputation and prevent innocent young believers from coming to me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around his neck 
and be drowned in the deepest sea. How terrible for the world that there are things that make people lose their faith. Such things will always happen, right? God says, some people are going to reject me just for me. But watch this. But how terrible for the one who causes them. That's why the greatest sin in the Ten Commandments, the worst one to violate, is this idea that religious evil is done in the name of God. Right? By people who bear the name of God. He says, listen, if you do evil while you are carrying my name, the Lord will not let you go unpunished for that damage. Now, what do I do if I realize I've been carrying God's name in vain and I realize I have been a big problem for other people? What do I do with that? That brings us to the conclusion. What if, I'd, what if I've carried God's name improperly? So in the old days, to carry or to bear God's name inappropriately was known as blasphemy. All right, blasphemy is a honking big deal. Um, Indiana Jones, a search for the Holy Grail. Remember, they've just escaped from Germans in a motorbike with a sidecar. Indiana cusses, and remember what his dad does? Sean Connery turns and slaps him <laughs> and says, don't blaspheme. All right, that's most of us, that's our understanding. It's much worse than that. Is there any hope for someone who has committed this blasphemy by carrying God's name and doing evil in such a way that it interferes with other people being able to trust or put their faith in God? I want to take you back to the writings of Paul again. Paul was a Jew who was converted to Christianity. While he was a Jew, he was a Jewish leader. And he assisted with the execution of Christians whom he accused of, guess what? Blasphemy. Here's what he says. 1 Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, watch, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in what? Ignorance and unbelief. So maybe you have in your ignorance, maybe you have in your immaturity, carried God's name on you falsely or ineffectually or uselessly or destructively. Man, I'm going to tell you, I know that I have. I absolutely know that I have. Maybe you've borne his name falsely, not really believing what he said, but saying, I need to do this. This is a good thing. I believe most of it, but I really don't believe all of it. And your actions then have reflected badly on the Lord or you stating your enlightened position against Scripture has damaged someone else's ability to trust Scripture. Maybe you've said you follow him when secretly your internal hypocrisy knows you have no intention of going all in and loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Maybe you've been destructive in the life of others. You've tried to hide behind Jesus as your excuse for being obnoxious to other people. 
The Apostle John gives us some encouragement here. 1 John 1.9 But if we confess... By the way, confession doesn't mean going and sitting in a little box and talking to a guy who's on the other side of the screen. Confession does not mean just reciting something because you know you're supposed to do it, but rather it means to acknowledge it, to own it, and to be prepared to make amends for it, to do whatever you've got to do. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, even miscarrying his name, and to cleanse us from all wickedness. See, as God's people, we've been called to represent God to be his ambassadors in an increasingly hostile world. And those who bear the image of God, God is using us to call people back to him. The God who declared himself the one true God still promises peace and security to those who trust him and who carry his name usefully appropriately. Let's pray. Father, thanks for an opportunity to stop and really do a deep dive and consider each of our lives and where we are and whether we're actually living out our faith in a way that maybe drives people away from you or maybe in such a way that it makes people think that faith in you is something it's not. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to shine a light of truth into our hearts, into every dark corner of our hearts. Convict us of our sin. Encourage us where we're doing well. Show us how we can serve and grow and mature. Show us how to love others more like Jesus. Show us how to be obedient to your word on all levels. And Father, help us to carry your name into the world in a way that reflects appropriately on you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.